Welcome to the inaugural Bijou Lecture. Welcome to those of you who've been with us from the beginning of the journey of our project Bijou, and also to those who may have just joined us. Now first I want a very quick reminder of what Project Bijou is and why we've launched it. Uh, so the what? Well, it's a social initiative by this office to share experiences, uh, perspectives, stories about data. And that, this is to encourage uh, better engagement and better understanding of the really critical importance of ethical data use. It's important to note that we want to expand the conversation beyond the walls of the regulator. This is something, data is something that affects each and every one of us. So we need therefore to try and involve as many people as possible. Now I recognize that this is not an easy task. Not everybody is interested uh, or gives it much thought, um, but that's okay. We need to start somewhere. And we want to start by giving everybody uh, the information and the tools that they need to engage with this vital issue. So the why? Well, we're doing this because this really is something, whether we like it or not, whether we care about it or not, which affects almost every aspect of our lives. More and more data are being collected about us, uh, created, manipulated, used, shared. More of that is being done than ever before. And that data is essentially us. So what happens to that data is a deeply important and serious question. Now it can create incredible opportunities, but it also can create very real harms. The more open, accountable, inclusive our conversations are, the more likely we are to get ethical outcomes. It's when power goes unchecked and unchallenged that bad decisions get made and bad decisions lead to bad outcomes. So the why is that we want to play our part here at the ODPA in widening discussions and encouraging those who maybe have felt previously a bit disenfranchised. Um, data and its protection is first and foremost a human issue. It's also a cultural, political, economic, legal and technical one. But we do need to be clear that we are all affected. If you have a look at the Project Bijou area of our website, you'll find lots of wonderful content from lots of different contributors, um, and we will continue to build on that in the coming months and years. This lecture series will be added to that library, but we wanted to do something a little bit different, to really give a free reign to a prominent leader in this field, to give us a sense of their thoughts, about what's happening today and is going to happen tomorrow. Encouraging us to think and also challenging us in some ways too. Now we may only be a small jurisdiction here in Guernsey but that doesn't stop us from being ambitious, from wanting to build a community, an economy, a culture that is built itself on human values, on ethical data use. As you'll shortly hear our first speaker say, Sometimes small states can make huge leaps forward. Now this area is moving at the speed of light. It's hard even for those of us that work in this field to keep up, let alone have the opportunity to pause, gather our thoughts and reflect. But taking a moment to pause, 
and reflect is, in my opinion, essential if we're going to learn the lessons of yesterday and inform our future direction and choices. And importantly, to do all that consciously and with a freedom of thought. Because our future really isn't predetermined. It's ours to determine, but we all have a part to play. It's a really enormous privilege to introduce you to Susie Allegre, a human rights lawyer, thought leader, author, and our very first Project Bijou lecture speaker. Hi, my name is Susie Allegre. I'm an international human rights lawyer and author based in the UK. I'm the founder of the Island Rights Initiative, a non-profit consultancy that specialises in human rights and small islands. And I'm also the author of a new book called Freedom to Think, The Long Struggle to Liberate Our Minds. I've been working in international human rights law for 25 years now, and I've covered human rights issues in a really wide range of contexts, from human rights and counterterrorism in the OSCE region, to working on human rights and combating corruption in East Africa. I've also worked on issues related to border control and how our human rights are affected when we cross borders. And I worked on issues around the human rights implications of Brexit. I've also worked as an ombudsman for the Financial Ombudsman Service in the UK, where I specialised in looking at issues relating to equality and access to financial services, and the way that the Equality Act in the UK is relevant to the work of the Financial Ombudsman Service. And for the past eight years, I've been Interception of Communications Commissioner for the Isle of Man, helping the island to make sure that its interception regime is compliant with international human rights and data protection standards. Most recently, I was appointed to Interpol's Commission for the Control of Interpol's Files as a data protection expert. And I work on a really wide range of issues. As the years have unfolded, Increasingly, I've seen how important data protection and data is to the protection of all of our human rights. It's not only about privacy. Data protection reaches into our right to freedom of association and assembly, looking at who we connect with online and how we might engage to protect our human rights more broadly, to protest online or to form support groups online. I've looked at the way that data can affect our rights in the criminal justice system. When we look at how data might be used to decide on sentencing, for example, or on whether or not somebody might get parole. As I worked on human rights issues on such a wide range of topics, I realised how data is increasingly affecting how we engage with each other, and also how our lives unfold. And for me, a real light bulb moment was when I first read about Cambridge Analytica and the potential for political, behavioural, micro-targeting adverts in elections. That for me was a real light bulb moment 
because while the discussions seem to focus on whether or not there'd been a data breach or a breach of election financing, to me, the key to political behavioural micro-targeting is that it's designed to get inside our minds. The idea is based on a desire to understand us as individual voters, to understand what makes us tick, what makes us vote, and how we might be influenced in an election context. And to use that information, to use the data that's being gathered on us, to manipulate what's going on inside our minds, to make us ultimately behave in a different way. Not necessarily to change the way we vote. So for example, in the Brexit context, not to change a person from being a Remainer to voting leave, but in a much more subtle way, our data could be used, for example, to distract us so that we may decide we can't be bothered to go and vote because we think that everything is just fine. Or it may be used to make us more likely to get up out of the armchair and go and vote if we're likely to vote in a way that is desirable to the people using behavioural micro-targeting. For me, this revelation really clarified how data is being used to access our minds and how that might be a threat to our right to freedom of thought. When I first started looking at the right to freedom of thought, there was very little written on it. There was some academic research that looked at the way that neuroscience might affect freedom of thought, but there was nothing really looking at how big data might have implications for our right to freedom of thought. The right to freedom of thought is protected in international human rights law in ways that many other rights are not. It's one of a very small number of rights that are known as absolute rights, that are rights that can never be interfered with for any reason whatsoever. They include the prohibition on torture and the prohibition on slavery. And if you take those rights together, you can understand how fundamental they are to human dignity and to what it means to be human, and that there can never be any justification for interfering with them. The right to private life or the right to freedom of expression, by contrast, are limited rights. So you may be able to limit the right to private life, for example, to protect the rights of others or to protect public health. Similarly, the right to freedom of expression can be limited for some reasons like national security or protecting the rights of others. But the right to freedom of thought inside our heads can never be interfered with for any reason whatsoever. What I realised when I first started looking at the right to freedom of thought in the context of data protection is that data protection and privacy operate like gateway rights to protect what's going on inside our heads. But increasingly, the way that data is being gathered and the way that technology is being developed is being used to work out what we're thinking, how we're thinking and how to change it. The right to freedom of thought has three key elements. First part is the right to keep our thoughts private. No one can coerce us into revealing what's going on inside our heads. The second is the right not to have our thoughts manipulated. And the third is the right not to be penalised for our thoughts. 
But increasingly, the way that big data is being used to make inferences about what we're thinking, how we're feeling, and how we might be influenced, I believe that that right is under threat today. So in my book, Freedom to Think, I've looked at the different ways that technology is being used to get inside our heads and made suggestions on the ways that governments might start to regulate technology to make sure that our right to freedom of thought is protected in practice in the future. One of the keys, in my view, to protecting the right to freedom of thought is to look at banning surveillance advertising. Surveillance advertising is not just about targeted adverts that know what you might be interested in buying. It's a much more granular assessment of how you're feeling, what you're thinking, what might press your psychological buttons in order to sell you something, whether that's a pair of socks or a politician. And surveillance advertising is the oil that fuels the big data industry. Another area that I think governments could look to regulate is personalization. You may want personalized recommendations of what you want to look at next uh, on the television, but that should always be something that you opt into and you should be able to understand how that information might be being used and how it might be affecting the way you think. There are big challenges in data governance, and it might sometimes feel like being in a small island, you don't have the chance to change things in ways that big geographical areas like the European Union or huge states like the United States or, the, or others like the United Kingdom might be able to. But sometimes small states can make huge leaps forward. One of my favourite stories from my home island, the Isle of Man, is that it was the first place to give women the vote in national elections in 1881, decades before the United Kingdom, and even before countries like New Zealand decided to give women the vote. And votes for women in the Isle of Man came about not by hunger strike or protest, but simply as a result of a lecture tour by a suffragette whose words were taken so seriously that within six months, the Isle of Man had started to give women the vote in national elections. Sometimes it's easier to make big changes in small places. And that's why I'm really delighted to be invited to talk to the ODPA in Guernsey today. Hi, Susan. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm not on mute oh. or anything there. No, it's very nice to actually meet you, not in person, but yeah. properly, not through LinkedIn, not through emails. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. So firstly, welcome, uh, Susie, and many congratulations on your new book. It really is a great read. So a quick plug for your book here. Um, very well thumbed already. So well done. It's a super, super read. Um, I recently heard Baroness Kennedy specifically mention that your skill 
as a lawyer writing so accessibly for long, long lawyers was, was excellent and, and that's no mean feat really um, and you do it really really well and that goes to the heart of what we are trying to do with Project Bijou really to include people uh, in this conversation not to exclude them uh, which I think has, has so often been the case uh, with data protection as it gets you know data protection gets framed all the time as a purely legal or purely technical issue um, and data protection I think as a result of that has a really hard time landing with, uh, with the general public and I think understandably because the language is so often impenetrable um, so not only is the content of your book great the way it's written um, it, it means the issue and all the, the complexity of the issues uh, are accessible and relatable uh, and of course they need to be because it's not just about law or technology and you say in your book um, that I quote this is not a book about technology it is a book about human rights and why they matter so I'd like to hear your thoughts about why you think it's so important to frame all these issues in this broader context with human rights at the, at the core. Absolutely well I mean as a, as a human rights lawyer one of the things that I've found really crucial and really fascinating about human rights is how it touches every aspect of our lives and often the way the human rights discourse is placed in the media or by politicians is that human rights are for other people uh, you know it's an issue for foreigners or criminals it's not about all of us one of the things I really wanted to get across when I started looking at human rights and technology is as you say, it's not about the technology, it's about us as human beings, it's about us as individuals, it's about how our societies are going to be shaped. And so one of the things I really wanted to do when I was writing the book was to make it personal. I have to say, it's one of the things I felt very nervous about when I suddenly saw it hitting the shelves, is quite how personal I've made it. But I really wanted people to understand that human rights is not a theoretical framework and data protection is important not as a compliance tool uh, not as a series of emails telling you that your data is very important to whoever is uh, processing it but why it matters to how our lives go how our lives develop what it means on the day-to-day -day. and i believe that if people start to understand why human rights matter why data protection matters to them and to their families to their communities then they will start to demand proper regulation uh, and change the current direction of travel, which I think is very worrying. Firstly, just a comment on the, the, the personal aspect of the book. I just loved it. It resonates because if it's personal, it's about a human being and we can relate to it a lot more. So I, I commend you for it. It must be tricky when you see that, that on the shelves, but I, I just loved it. And it made it so much more easy to connect with and understandable. Um, and I've heard you talk a number of times uh, or mention the need, sort of critical need really for this discussion to broaden into wider civil society. I mean, personally, I think that some of the, the biggest problem we have at the minute, and really it's a grave danger in my view, is, is sort of apathy, uh, disinterest, a sense of, of disconnect to these issues, and, and also importantly, powerlessness in the face of the sheer scale and speed uh, of the datification of our lives. And of course, uh, the, the extraordinary power that especially big tech companies now have, mostly behind the scenes. You know, we are every single one of us, every single second of the day, absolutely immersed in data, data that we produce, that is produced about us, whether we like it or not, whether we know about it or not. 
and encouraging a much wider engagement because everybody is affected, not just lawyers and not just regulators, is at the heart of what the project we are, we are trying to do is. But tell us a bit more why you think we need to do more work on that broader engagement piece across all areas of society, not just the lawyers and not just the regulators. Well, I suppose, you know, I mean, I've been working as a human rights lawyer now for 25 years uh, and including issues around privacy and data protection in the context of counterterrorism, in the context of corruption, in the context of borders. And I suppose for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to start focusing on the right to freedom of thought was that even though I understood on a technical level the importance of privacy and data protection, it didn't really resonate. You know, I didn't feel it. I understood it intellectually, but I didn't feel it. And it was the first time that I read about political behavioural micro-targeting, so the kind of techniques used by Cambridge Analytica, and this idea that political parties or political actors could use our data to understand whether or not we were anxious, what kind of a person we are, what's going to, to get us upset, what's going to fire us up, and to use that information to then target us directly online with messages that were tailored to our personal individual vulnerabilities, to change the way we feel and therefore change the way we vote or whether or not we decide to go and vote, was so viscerally disturbing this idea that somebody could have curated my Facebook newsfeed in order to make me think, oh, well, you know, everything will be fine, for example, in the Brexit referendum. Um, that really, really profoundly disturbed me. And that's why I wanted to focus on this idea of freedom of thought rather than privacy. Because while many people uh, will say, well, you know, I've got nothing to hide when you talk about privacy, or with data protection as well, people say, well, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter to me if somebody knows what my date of birth is, what difference does it make? This idea that it could be used to manipulate what goes on inside our minds is to me something that I hope will resonate much more broadly, both in the human rights community, but also more broadly with the public. Nobody wants to feel manipulated. Uh, and it's not really about how clever you are. It's not about saying, well, you know, of course, I, I would recognise fake news. It's a much more subtle and granular way that we're being pushed. And the more that I looked at it, the more that I saw that it covers pretty much every area of technology that's affecting our lives, whether it's about getting approved for a mortgage or finding a partner online or whether or not you're going to be sentenced to custody if you find yourself um, in conflict with the law, realising how widespread this use of technology and use of data to try to get inside our heads was, to me, was very disturbing. And I think that offers an opportunity to reach out beyond the traditional spheres of data protection, if you like, to a much wider audience, whether it's human rights and civil society organisations, even political organisations, to understand what the threat of this is to democracy more broadly. So I think it does offer this opportunity to go beyond a strict sort of compliance regime around data protection. That's such an interesting point, because in the past, when I've been talking about especially big data, a lot of the, the emphasis has been things like, oh, we want to find out more about 
person X and which cola brand they like so we can offer more of that cola brand. I mean, what we're moving to is that company de determining which cola brand for the person and then feeding them with information. So you, like you say, it's, it, but, but it's so much more than about selling stuff now, isn't it? I mean, you touched on it just then. This is about, this gets to the heart of democratic rights, of, of freedoms in, in a really profound way. And, and, and my question to you, I suppose now is, you, you didn't, and I have had those light bulb moments as well, but do, do we, how do we get the community to, to viscerally be disturbed in a way that maybe we have, have been, because we've had direct contact? And do we all need to be viscerally disturbed or is there another way, is there a way of expanding this in a way that doesn't have to rely on people being shocked and appalled, but we can just build something a bit better from the outset? Do you think there's an opportunity for that? I think there is an opportunity. And, and I suppose when I started to look into this question, and as I say, when I realised how much it touches on every aspect of our lives, I think understanding how widespread it is. And as you say, that that question that it's not just about saying, oh, Here's someone who likes this brand of drinks, so we'll remind them that they might want to buy some this week. It is about saying, OK, there's someone who might be a, a drinks buyer. How are we going to manipulate their minds so that they want to buy our particular drink? And I mean, advertising has always been about that in one way or another. But what's different now is that it's really individually personalised advertising. It's about saying oh, there's someone who's having a bad day. I think they'd be a great target for online gambling. Um, you know, how are we going to sell them online gambling to this particular individual? Is it something that they want to feel, you know, do, do they want to feel like they're having a party in their own home? Right, here's the advert we can deliver to them uh, while they're scrolling through their newsfeed. And it's that individual manipulative power, which I think is very disturbing. In terms of how we get, change i think raising awareness of what it actually means helping people to see what the tech is saying about them and there are various tools um, that i've referred to in my book you know one of them is it's um, a cambridge university tool called apply magic source where you can link up your social media account um, and it will look at your feeds and come back and tell you what it infers about you uh, and when I did that with my Twitter feed, it came back indicating that I was probably a 30-something man, uh, which may be because I mostly use Twitter for professional purposes. And therefore, uh, you know, I, I wasn't coming across as an over-emotional middle-aged woman. It was much more that, that sort of professional atmosphere. But what I think is, is um, disturbing and entertaining about these things in a way is that it doesn't matter if the inferences are wrong. So some people will look at it and say, well, you know, the targeted advertising I'm getting is absolutely rubbish. They're trying to sell me the shoes that I bought two weeks ago. But the thing about inferences about what's going on inside your mind is that it doesn't matter if they get you wrong. You know, if the witch finder decides you're a witch, it doesn't matter whether or not you've ever had a, a thought about witchcraft in your life. You may well still be burned at the stake. And that's what's really important to bear in mind, that it doesn't matter if the tech is getting you right or wrong it may well still lead to a violation of your rights and may well change your life. I think as people start to understand that and start to, to recognise how they are personally affected, then hopefully they will start uh, demanding change. And it's by demanding change you know, at the ballot box that we will effectively be able to change our futures.
and you touched on it a second ago, but we have been extraordinarily lucky, haven't we, in our jurisdictions that we don't haven't really been forced to think about these, these things. But there are many countries across the world where inference can mean death. Um, and I think that's that's again an important message for us all. And a, and a lovely quote from from your book again, a definite we've been in a definitive period of peace and prosperity, at least in Europe and North America, which has allowed many people to forget why human rights matter for all our lives. So I think it's important to remind ourselves as well, isn't it, of how very fortunate we are, but not to take all that for granted. Now, you, you talked about your experience in smaller jurisdictions, which is a joy to hear, because we're a small jurisdiction too. Yes. I mean, they come with their own challenges, but they also come with their own uh, opportunities. And I'd love you to give us a couple of top tips, uh, both for those that are charged with looking after data, so controllers who have a lot of data about their clients or staff or whoever, but also the individual citizen, um, who, certainly in my experience, they often feel really disconnected and disempowered. Uh, and in the face of, of noting your quote, that we are at a defining point in history now, and hearing you say in your talk that um, small states can make huge leaps forward, what would you do to help us, the controllers and the individuals, to, to start at least to think about making those huge leaps forward? I suppose the data controllers, I'd say think about what you're using the data for, what is your goal? If what you're using it for is to get inside someone's mind, then stop, <laughs> think again, uh, and take another approach. Don't think about it from a technical perspective. Think about it much more from a, what are you trying to get out of it? And this may seem like a great idea, fantastic, I can use this information to sell more cola, but if you're using that information in a way that is effectively to get inside people's heads, just stop, step back and think about the consequences of that, not just for the individuals concerned, but for our society more broadly. For individuals, I'd recommend just finding out more about what the data that's available on you gives away. There are various tools, the Privacy International, a, a privacy campaign group developed a Twitter bot called Adversary Bot that you can follow and that will then give you a weekly rundown on what your Twitter activity is saying about you and how you're feeling that week. Understanding what data says about you is a first step towards demanding change. As an individual, you can't, in the current day and age, completely control the data trails that you're leaving. But what you can do is demand that legislators and policymakers take action to stop your data being hijacked and used in ways that are damaging to you or maybe damaging more broadly to your society or globally. Now, um, I'd like you to leave us, what we're trying to do with Project Bijou is to give everybody one of those light bulb moments. And we're putting various content out there to try and reach various different audiences. If you could encourage someone to have a light bulb moment, what is it the one thing you'd want people to take away today, uh, whoever they may be, uh, from what we're saying? I would hope that everyone can take a look at their own life, what apps they've got on their phone, how much time they spend on social media, whether or not they're looking at a screen when their children are asking them something or telling them about their day at school. 
to reflect on what your own relationship is with technology and to understand that the future of technology and the future of data is all of our futures and to think about what you want in your life and for your children's lives uh, out of our future with technology. Such powerful words. And I'm wondering if, uh, do you happen to have your book to hand, Susie? I do. Could I ask you a favour? So at the bottom of page 329, um, the paragraph that starts, your part, maybe big or small. I'd love you to read from your part to the end of that, that paragraph, because I think it just summarises so beautifully um, how we can't afford to be bystanders. And it's a great quote. So may I ask you kindly to do us the honours of reading that for us now? Absolutely, thank you. Your part may be big or small, but whether you are a technologist, a lawyer, a politician, a civil servant, an investor, a teacher, a concerned parent, or a consumer of technology, you could make a difference for all our futures. It's just a lovely way to finish. So it's been an enormous honor uh, to have you talk to us, Susie, and to be part of our inaugural BGU lecture series. Thank you so much for giving us your time and insights and very best of luck with the book. Um, and thank you very much. And we hope to give many light bulb moments as a result of this. My pleasure. And thank you so much and for all the work that you do uh, for driving forward data protection and these issues from uh, the Channel Islands and beyond. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Susie.